It's time to dream again about what the church could be. This vision is intended to come from Christ himself. So what does he want from his church and how do we reclaim it? Join us as we journey through the New Testament to discover how the ancient paths inform the future church. So glad you're here with us today. My name is Joe. I serve as one of the pastors here at Riverbend. Some of you have asked, have I been replaced with somebody else? Because you've never seen me wear a jacket before, a suit jacket to preach. And I just decided because it was colder today to switch it up. This actually is the jacket of my father-in-law who passed away in 2011. And so I recently uh, got to get this jacket, and it fits great, uh, thankfully, right? Uh, so it's working okay for me this morning. Uh, but we are so glad again that you're here with us, no matter what your attire is. We're just glad you have clothes on, right? We're glad you're here today. And uh, again, want to say uh, how excited we are as we're continuing our teaching series called Future Church. And what we've been doing in this teaching series is we've been really getting God's vision for His church. We've been really seeking to understand what it is that he has for us. And last week I talked about this movie called Back to the Future. And many of you are familiar with this movie. Some of you have no clue what Back to the Future is. And I want to encourage you for your own sake and just to enjoy the goodness that it is to go check it out somewhere. But one of the things you learn about Back to the Future is there's this vehicle called the DeLorean that allows Michael J. Fox's character to go back in time. And so we've been actually going back in time in a lot of ways and looking at what we see as far as the ancient ways of what the church is intended to be. But then in Back to the Future Part 2, he gets in the DeLorean again, and he goes to the future. And what we've been doing these last few weeks, starting last week, is going to the future of what is actually to come based off the book of Revelation. And so last week we looked at Revelation 7. Today we're going to look at Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to finish up this series in Revelation next week as well. And one of the things I want to help us to do is to understand that Revelation is often talked about in a way that focuses on dates and times and what all these signs mean. And while I understand Uh, the fascination with it and desire to understand that, I think what it does at times is it's what Jesus would tell his disciples as he was going up to heaven. And they're like, are you establishing your kingdom in Jerusalem now? He says, hey, the dates and times are not for you to know. They're not for you to know. Instead, I'm going to come back like a thief in the night. And so in light of that, in light of that, when you're, if you're getting ready for a thief to come, you're going to be prepared, right? Like if you know a thief's going to come, you're not going to just be like, man, I'm just going to go to bed like normal, right? You're going to have a plan, right? You're going to prepare. You're going to get ready. And so in the same way, what Revelation helps us to do is it helps us to understand who this Jesus is and what he has for his church so that we can faithfully live today in light of our forever tomorrow with him. And so it's not to avoid life, but rather to fully step into, to be a preview of that coming day, when he's going to make all things as they should be, perfectly and completely. But we get to rehearse in this life. And it's such a gift to be able to do that. And so as we consider what it is we're going to talk about today, one of the things I really want us to to really get and to understand, because all that sounds great, and I'm all a vision guy, and I get excited about vision, and that, that is really energizing to me. But one of the things that we can miss in the midst of the vision that Jesus has for us is that there's a fight for that vision to be lived out in our lives and amongst us. 
And so the first statement I want to give us today is simply this, and it's that we are at war. We are at war. Let's say that together out loud on three. One, two, three. We are at war. Now, I know that terminology for some of us feels a little different. Some of you came this morning, you're like, oh, this makes sense because I got into a fight with my spouse on the way here. Uh, so you think, yeah, man, I'm, I'm at war with them. The kids were unruly, whatever the case may be. Uh, you know, your, your housemate, you know, your roommate, they're driving you crazy. Uh, somebody else, some politician, some other thing uh, that we think we're at war with is maybe what we think about. Some of us, we get uncomfortable with this language just because of the idea of a fight and a war and a battle. But what I'm talking about is not a fight with somebody, but rather to understand more fully that we have a battle in which is not of this world in the sense of there is uh, rulers and principalities of darkness that we're waging war against. So it's not a person that I'm talking about. And, and I will add, if you're uncomfortable with the language of battle, war, fight, I get, I get that, I can understand that. But when you read through the New Testament, in order to understand what it is that we're in, it's using that type of language, that we're in a spiritual battle, that we're to put on the armor of God, that we're to fight the good fight of faith. You hear this again and again and again. And there's this quote that I came across that helps us to really even understand what it is that we're talking about. And St. Augustine or St. Augustine, however you pronounce his name, based off your own preference, because they are said both ways, I want you to hear what he says, because I think it's really helpful. He says, during the earthly pilgrimage, our life cannot be free from temptation. For none of us come to know ourselves except through the experience of temptation. Nor can we be crowned until we have come through victorious. Nor be victorious until we have been in battle. Nor fight our battles unless we have an enemy and temptation to overcome. And as you read that, and just let that kind of sit on you, this morning, the question I want to give us is simply this. How do we win the war? How do we win the war? How do we, first of all, understand what war we're in, but then secondly, how do we tactically go to war as we are in this battle? Because we want to fight for what it is Jesus has for our lives, for his church. We want to join him on what he is doing. And next week, we'll see how he's going to make all things new how he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth, and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful picture, but I think it's really important before we get to that to understand the war that we are in. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up with me to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And as we read this chapter, it's a prophecy, a revelation of what's happened already, a revelation, a revealing of John, who's the disciple of Jesus, of how Jesus has come into the world. And so this is what the the first couple of verses here leading up to verse 7 is really talking about Jesus' coming, his first coming. And then it says this. It says, then, what's the word here? Then what? Then what? Then war broke out in heaven. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the what? What's his name? The devil or? All right, the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He leads the whole world astray. 
He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And so as we read what's said here, and I think it's really important we don't miss this because there's imagery, but there's this battle. There's this great war for our hearts and for our souls. And not just for us, but for all people. There's this great war. And it says that this, this war broke out in heaven between Michael and his angels who fought against this dragon. And the dragon and his angels, they, they fought back, right? But they weren't strong enough. But it gives us descriptions of who this great dragon was. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. This serpent who appears in Genesis to Adam and Eve and tempts them. He tempts them. He, he leads them astray with things that are not fully as they are. He gives them a piece of the truth, but not the whole truth. He fabricates things and disorients them by reorienting what God actually says to them. Things like, if you eat this, surely you will not die. Saying, hey, did he really say this? Causing them to doubt God's heart towards them, right? We see this, and we see this in in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 with Jesus as well, as he has this great battle that plays out when he's tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. And as he's tempted, he battles, and as he battles, it's Satan using passages of the Bible out of context to say something to mean something that they don't really mean. Does that sound familiar? Right? And so what we're finding as we read this passage, there's there's this great, great battle. There's this one who wants to lead us astray. And where does he want to lead us? He wants to lead us where he's at, the place of death. Jesus would describe him as a murderer. He's a liar from the beginning, John 8. This is how he describes this enemy, Satan, devil, the the ancient dragon, the serpent. These are the ways that he is described. And not only is he described in this way, but one of the things that we have to realize is As powerful as he is, he is not as powerful as our Heavenly Father. He is not as powerful of Jesus. He is not as powerful as the Spirit, Holy Spirit at work in us. He's not as powerful. He was created. But what did he do? He tried to overthrow God and his authority and say, hey, I'm better than you. I'm more powerful than you. Come worship me. Come join in this rebellion. And he was hurled down out of heaven. And we see this in the Old Testament. There's references to this throughout different books of the Old Testament that help us to get a picture of what's described in this moment in the scene. But I don't want us to miss this because he wants to lead you and me astray. And he wants to lead us to a place of not life but death. That's his desire. That is what he is wanting to do for us. Again, Jesus would say about him, the thief comes to kill, still and destroy but I've come to give you life and give it to you abundantly. Now, as we hear this, some of us are like, all right, I'm I'm with you. (laughs) I understand. How does this really play out practically? And I really want to help us to understand that. So as we continue on in the message, first, first thing first is this, that we win the war when we know our enemy. We win the war when we know our enemy. And in a culture right now that likes to dehumanize people, we like to consider the other the enemy when we polarize against other people, we like to consider them the enemy. And when we talk about enemy, yes, there is a part where people hurt us and wound us, and they are an enemy in that way. But I'm talking about our great enemy, the enemy that's even above those types of enemies. And so I want you to know that as we read this, that 
we win the war when we know our enemy. We must know our enemy. So as we continue on here, here's a couple things about this. This book by John Mark Comer, he helps us to really understand what our enemies are and what this looks like. It's called Live No Lies, Recognize and Resist the Three Enemies That Sabotage Your Peace is the subtitle. But I want you to hear how he describes some of these things. He goes on to say, as followers of Christ, we are at war with the devil, the flesh, and the world. And this at one point in time was a very common vernacular for us. It may or may not be as common. And then he goes on to define what that means. So here's what he means when he talks about the devil. The first is deceptive ideas. These are deceptive ideas that he plants. He leads the world astray. And how does he lead us astray? He leads us astray with lies. Lies are the inability to stand and live in reality. And we create a counter-reality, or believe something that's not true because it makes us not feel comfortable or it's something that we're having a difficult time seeing for what it really is. A lot of times we don't even know it's happening, right? We're just going against, we're going with the current. We're going with the flow of things. And then one day, hopefully, we wake up and say, wait a minute, how did I get here? (laughs) How did I get down to this place, right? And we start to open our eyes. But these deceptive ideas, he would say, that play to disordered desires. And he would call that the flesh. And so disordered desires are taking a good thing and making them a God thing. It's taking the good gift of things like work and saying one of two things about work. One, work is everything. It's my identity. It's who I am. It shows my worth, my value, my significance. The other part of that, of disorienting our desires or disordered desires would be I have to avoid work at all costs. It's all about rest, relaxation. Ugh, work's awful. Both are wrong, right? Both are wrong. And we can do this through a list of other things like that. But they're disordered. They're not in the way that God has intended. It's out of alignment with what he's created and has for us. And then it leads to, leads to this last part that are normalized in a sinful society, the world. And when he's saying that, it's not a, a lack of love for our, our world and, our, and the culture that we're in. We, we love the world that we live in. We, we value it. We want to see people and places restored as God has intended. But it's easy to allow ourselves or what the culture and common to the culture to be the ultimate authority. It's easy to allow that to happen, to be people, again, because of these deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society to go in that stream and stay in that current. And so as we think about that in our own lives, as we think about that and we consider that, that leads us to this here. Where have you let Satan lead you astray from the Jesus way? Where have you allowed these deceptive ideas to feed to disordered desires that are affirmed by the culture in which we live in? Where has that taken place? Is it in your area in the area of politics and how you view politics? Is it in the area of sexuality? Are you redefining God's vision for your sexuality and what he has for you? Is it your area of finances? Is it in the area of your career? Is it in the area of what you accomplish? Is it in the area of how you view yourself even? 
Like, where is it that he's leading you astray? What are these ideas that continue to come at you again and again and again? Where is he trying to lead you astray? I want you to think about that. And that leads us to this here. The devil has been hurled down, and in the name of Jesus, we can stand our ground. I want you to hear this. He's been defeated. Through the life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ in his return, he has been defeated. But that doesn't mean we're not at war, because we are. It's a yes and not yet promise. It's a yes that this happened, and not yet that it's not fully, perfectly lived out and realized in this life that we're in. And I want you to know that as we look at him and and see him for who he is, and as we think about those three enemies, the devil, the flesh, and the world, I want you to know that we can have victory. We can have victory because the devil has been hurled down, and in the name of Jesus, we can stand our ground. But if you don't know you're in a war, if you don't know you're in a war, you won't know that you actually need to stand your ground. And if you don't know your enemy, you're going to fight all kinds of other enemies that are just distractions from the real enemy. We've got to stand our ground. We've got to resist. And we're going to talk practically about how that happens throughout this message. But I don't want you to miss this because we've got to have a proper foundation and understanding of who our enemy is and how in the name of Jesus, not in my name, not in your name, in his name, the name that is above all names, the name that is lifted above every other name, the authority that's over all authority, the name of Jesus, the work, the person of Jesus in our lives being formed in him and our character and the competencies of what it is he is unleashing in us as we walk in his footsteps. So as we continue on here, I want us to hear what it goes on to say. It says this in Revelation 12.10, It says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, and I want us to read this out loud together. One, two, three. Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. I want you to hear this language because this is an important piece for us to not miss. First of all, I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now have come salvation, the salvation, and the power, and the kingdom of our God. We need salvation. We need to be made right with God. We need to experience salvation where there are strongholds in our lives. He is the one that breaks down these strongholds. Where people are held captive, where places are held captive, he brings his salvation He brings his salvation in the power, in the kingdom of our God. The power, the power that's above the most powerful is found in him. The kingdom that is not my kingdom, but his kingdom. When Jesus prays, not my kingdom, but your kingdom, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's talking about, I want to see your ways lived out here. I want to see people flourish, places flourish in alignment with what you have designed them for. I'm praying to that end and the authority of his Messiah, the one, the one that they were waiting for and the one that we continue to wait for and live in light of his return. We're not, again, sitting on our hands. We're joining him in what he wants to do in our lives and what he wants to do all around us. But I don't want us to miss this, that there is an accuser 
There is an accuser. And the accuser, it says, of our, our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night. Have you ever felt accused day and night? You know what that feels like when you're accused? And we can talk about that in terms of relation, relationships. When someone misunderstands you and accuses you of this or someone speaks ill of you and it's not the full picture and you feel accused, right? You, you've had that feeling. And then there's the inner voice of our own lives where we feel constantly accused. We just replay something that happened, a mistake, a failure, something we would have done differently. And this anxiety, whether it's low-grade or even high-grade anxiety, overtakes us and overwhelms us. And the accuser, he comes at us day and night before our Father, before God. And it says he's hurled down, but that doesn't change the fact that it's still happening. (laughs) Those exact accusations are still coming our way. Those arrows are being fired at us. They're being fired at us. So as we think about this, as we think about this, I want you to consider the following. The authority of Jesus is greater than the accusation of our enemy. The authority of Jesus is greater than the accusation of our enemy. Because an accusation is a charges that are brought against you. And the good news is in Jesus, he takes those charges on. And he brings them before the, the good and perfect father who sits on the judgment seat and says of us, because of what Christ has done on our behalf, not guilty, set free, forgiven, in process, which is a word called sanctification. We're in process with him and what he's doing in our lives. But the authority of Jesus is greater than the accusation of our enemy. And so as we continue on here, I want you to just think about this. What accusations assault you day and night? What are those accusations right now in your own life? What are those accusations that assault you day and night? Some of them look like the following. I'm so alone, no one cares about me. I'm so alone, no one cares about me. You know what? It would be better if I wasn't even here. If I took my life. Where do you think that stuff comes from? Do you think that's from your heavenly father? You know, some of us are like, hey, things are so out of control. And doesn't that feel like the last two years? (laughs) Everything's out of control. So I I just got to hold on to the little bit of control I have. Because if I don't hold on to it, then everything's spinning out of control. And it means that God doesn't actually know what he's doing. I want you to think about what, what are those accusations for you? Because I think there are some very specific ones to you. Whether it's about how you look, whether it's about what you've done or not done, whether it's about your parenting. I know some of you right now as parents, this last two years has been so hard, and you feel like you have failed your kids. You feel like, man, I cannot, I cannot figure it out. And I'm failing them. And our enemy would love to use that accusation to hold us back from, from fully stepping into their lives and to engage. He would love that. So what accusations assault you day and night? I want you to be able to answer this for yourself and bring them before your heavenly father. Bring them before trusted brothers and sisters who are going to point you to Jesus and what he's done. But then the next part of this is that we need to answer 
the accusations with the authority of Scripture. We need to answer the accusations with the authority of Scripture. If you go through Matthew 4 and Luke 4, this is what Jesus did again and again and again. You've heard me say that again and again and again because I think sometimes it's easy, especially as we're in in the American culture, to believe we don't even have an enemy and not to believe that in his name and through the power of Scripture, the way he fought is the way we're to fight. And I just want to let you know, I want to let you know, that if we're going to win this war, if we're going to fight for one another, we've got to do what Jesus did, saturating ourselves with the love of the Father. And part of that is to spend time with him, but also to get in his word and allow others in a community around us, brothers and sisters, to rally around us so that we can stay and stand our ground with Jesus and with one another. It's too important. So we answered the accusations with the authority of Scripture. And I want to give you some examples of what this looks like. Because it's one thing to tell you that, but I want to give you some, some ways that this plays out. Accusations that lead astray. And if we believe these accusations, they can lead us astray. I am my worst moment. Authority of Scripture says, Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8, 1 and 2. Here's another accusation that leads astray. God doesn't have your best interest in mind. Authority of Scripture says, I have come to give you life that is full. This is Jesus, John 10, 10. Another accusation that leads astray. I must feed my lustful appetite to be fully living. The authority of Scripture says, flee youthful lust." And pursue godliness with those who call on God with a pure heart. Here's another accusation that leads astray. The work I do doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's at home, whether it's at the office, whether it's in the neighborhood. It doesn't matter. Authority of Scripture says, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in what? What's the word here? It's not in vain. It's not in vain. Here's another accusation that leads astray. Whatever the culture says is normal and correct, is normal and correct. Whatever the culture says is normal and correct. Authority of Scripture says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We need to know what the accusations are that lead us astray. And for each of us, it's different. But we need to name those before Jesus and before trusted friends who are going to point us to Jesus and then hold the scriptures, hold the authority of scriptures to come against to come against those lies. Well, as we continue on here, I want us to hear what's said in Revelation 12, 11. It says, they triumphed over him, talking about the enemy, Satan, the devil. We just talked about the flesh and the world. They triumphed over him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. And I want you to hear this. There is this victory. 
And we talked about how we deal with these accusations, with the authority of Scripture. But then we hear these three other parts of this, where there's this triumph that is ours. It's by the blood of the Lamb. It's by what Jesus has done. By the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So again, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, they didn't love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So the three areas here, again, as we think about walking in victory that I want to give to us, and they're right here on the, on the screen. First is that we need to know that Jesus, the overcomer, enables us to overcome. And so as we understand that and we look to who he is, he's the great overcomer, right? It's by his blood for us. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John 3. As John would record John the Baptist saying this about Jesus. So Jesus, the overcomer, enables us to overcome. And then as we think about overcoming, how do we overcome? We will overcome by, let's see this, say these three out loud together. One, two, three. By the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony, laying down our lives. And I want you not to miss this. Because as we talk about what it is, this accusation that comes day and night, that comes before the Father day and night, we overcome by these three areas. And when we talk about the blood of the Lamb, it is easy to miss the fullness of what that means. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, who was the founder of this great thing called Labrie, and was really a, a place for people to come in who were skeptical about the faith. He says, actually, you can't start talking about the gospel of Jesus from brokenness. You always have to start with creation, meaning you have to start back the way it was intended to be and then what happened. So as we think about the blood of the lamb, I want to help us to understand. I want us to get a full picture. And this is just one of those images that helps with this, that God had a design. God had a design for each and every one of us and for this world. And yet, in the midst of his perfect design and his desire for us to walk with him in the cool of the day as Adam and Eve experienced, and there was no shame and no blame and no fear and no pride, there was none of that. They weren't even worried about what they had on because they didn't know they didn't have anything on, right? They didn't know. There was this, this beauty that was there. But Adam and Eve were led astray by their great enemy, our great enemy, the one who leads us astray, the accuser of the brethren. And this is where sin enters the, the world. And sin, that word sin, is really this idea of missing God's mark and standard for our lives. And we've all done it, right? We've all done that. And if you're like, man, I haven't sinned, you, you just sinned. You just did it. You did it. There you go. Like, I guess you're like wondering, do I know? Ask someone close to you, have I ever missed God's standard? They'll tell you, yes, yes, you have. You have. <laughs> I have. We all have. And so God's design God's design was for us to walk with him and to trust his heart towards us. But then sin enters the world. And as sin enters the world, there is this brokenness. And this brokenness, we see it everywhere. If I asked you, where do you see brokenness? You could come up with probably five things easily. Brokenness within you, brokenness around you, you see it. And I see it. And the good news of the gospel of Christ is it doesn't just stay in brokenness. That if we repent, meaning changing our mind and our direction and believe, not just in an intellectual sense of the word, but put our trust in, 
lean in on, believe through faith that leads to a trust in the one who's able to do what we are unable to do. That there is a rescuer, the blood of the lamb, who takes away the sins of the world, that takes away our sins, that takes away our brokenness. If we repent and believe and put our faith in the gospel, the good news, the life, death, burial, resurrection, the ascension, and the return of Christ. When we put our our trust in him, in the glorious gospel, then we recover and pursue God's design. And so I want you to get a full picture of this because I want you to get it in high definition because I think sometimes we can minimize what it is that he's actually done for us and what he's called us to. And I don't want us to inadvertently do that. I don't think it's ever on purpose, but I want us to get the whole picture. So when he talks about we overcome by the blood of the lamb, we understand fully what it is he has done for us and what he has not only for us, but for all people. We join him on his rescue mission. We join him on the recovery and the pursuing of his design for our lives in the lives of others as well. As we continue on here, the second part was the word of our testimony. The word of our testimony. And here's a question for you. What is the word of your testimony? What is the word of your testimony? What is it that you would say, as you ask and answer this question for yourself, would describe who Jesus is? is to you and what he has done for you and what he's continuing to do in your life. What is that word of testimony? And the word of testimony isn't just us saying it, that's part of it, but it's us living it out too, that we testify with our lives as well. It's both. It's a both and. We testify with our words and with our lives that we are pursuing the Jesus way. And in this context, there were people that were literally losing their lives. And we're seeing that around the world right now. We're seeing people in Afghanistan and Iran and in China losing their lives because of the word of their testimony, because they refuse to deny that they are followers of Jesus. They refuse to do that because of their their word of their testimony. But I don't want us to miss that because for us, for us, the word of our testimony, the articulating of that, means that when we are proclaiming it with our words in our lives, at times, at times, there are going to be people who aren't going to be about that and aren't going to be for that. And it'll be tempting to, first of all, view them as the enemy, and they're not the enemy. God paid a great price for them. And secondly, it's easy in the midst of that to compromise our conviction with a lack of compassion. And we want to hold fast to Jesus, which leads us to this third part, laying down our lives. We talked about the brothers and sisters who are losing their lives around the world, and we want to be praying for our brothers and sisters. But I want to just say to you, sometimes I think we can glamorize losing our lives in a physical sense of the word. And, and I don't mean that, that any of us in this room are like, yeah, you know what, I actually want to lose my life today for Jesus. Like, I want to, you know. But what I mean by that is it almost becomes heroic, and it is in in some ways, but you know what's more challenging is to do what Jesus said daily, which is to lay down our lives and to take up our cross and follow after him, to follow what he has for us, right? Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, and by, by faith I live, by the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In other words, I'm gonna join Jesus in a posture of serving and humility, and I'm going to lay down my life 
for others. I'm going to ask the question, who can I serve? How can I help? How can I lay down my life even when it means, even when it means that I potentially will be accused of something that's not fully true? Because while we may not be experiencing martyrdom as we see around the world, I have to say there, there is a change in our culture, in this post-Christian culture that we live in, where following the Jesus way isn't viewed as virtuous as it once was. And in fact, sometimes it will be considered that you're closed-minded. Sometimes it will be viewed that you're bigoted. And I'm not talking about, again, and you've heard me say this, but I want to be clear. I'm not talking about being a jerk, and I'm not talking about being rude. I'm not talking about being unloving. But when you lovingly share what it is that Jesus has done for you and what he has for you, when you talk about his vision specifically about sexuality, about politics, these areas that often generate a lot of different opinions, and because people's identity is so much rooted in what it is they look at as the ideas that are truth, it will feel like you're, you're attacking them, but you're, you're not. But it will feel that way. And then they will interpret that and want to combat in that way. But I want you not to miss that in Jesus, we can lead another way. We can serve those even that would come at us that way. We could be gracious. We could be loving. We could be truthful. We could, instead of responding and reacting out of our anger, be slow, slow to speak and quick to listen slow to speak. And there's a shortage right now of people being slow to speak and quick to listen. And it's easy to move into reaction and combativeness instead of compassion and truth and grace and love. Again, these are the ways of Jesus. So how will you daily lay, lay, lay down your life? How will you daily lay down your life? What does it look like for you? And I want you to be thinking about it. Maybe it's, again, serving others, but maybe for you, there's something you're battling right now that you're going to resist this temptation, whether it's responding in a, reaction, a reactionary kind of way to somebody. Uh, maybe that's for you right now. That's something you're battling with. Maybe it's forgiving someone and, and praying a blessing over those who've hurt you. Maybe for you, it's giving over, like I mentioned, not only the vision of sexuality, but his vision for you when it comes to sexuality. You specifically. Because it's easy in broad terms to talk about somebody out there. I'm talking about you. His vision for people. His vision for human flourishing. His vision for us to experience the freedom that he's come to give. So how will you daily lay down your life? Well, as we continue on here, it says this, and this is the last verse we'll look at this morning. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil... Has gone down to you. He's filled with fury because he knows that his time is what? What's the word here? His time is short. In other words, he's going to have a final, final loss. We're going to have our final victory completely and perfectly when Jesus returns. But I don't want you to miss this because he's still coming filled with fury. He's bent on destroying your life destroying my life, destroying the lives of those around us. He does not want you to have freedom. He wants you to have what he has, which is death. 
And pride, pride is at the heart of that for him. That's what, that's what hurled him down from heaven, his pride. And pride will lead to us dying as well and experiencing the life that Christ has for us, to be separated from God and separated from what it is he has for us. And in faith and trust in Jesus and following after him, we can experience the life that he has called us, this life, life he's called us to that's marked by this love, this perfect, complete love, this joy, this peace. This is not to hold out on you, but this is to give you what you are always intended and created for. So here's a question as we wrap up. Will you wage war for yourself and others? Will you wage war for yourself and others? This is a choice that we daily have to make. I have to make a choice. Will I wage war for myself before the Lord? Will I? And I love the battle cry that's going on right here. You see that? Yes! It's like a Braveheart scene right now. Yo! Freedom! You know? Uh, you hear the elementary age. They're just letting us know. It's for real. But for real, like, as we think about that in our lives, am I going to answer for myself? Yes, I'm going to wage war for myself, but I'm going to wage war for my son, Ray, and my wife, Amy. I'm going to fight for them. I'm going to fight for them through prayer, through intentionality, through confessing when I get it wrong and asking for forgiveness. I'm going to fight for the people of this church, Riverbend Community Church. I'm going to fight for the people that are here in the valley. I'm going to fight. I want to wage war. I want to wage war so that at the end of my time here, I could say I did everything to see people fully formed in Jesus, fully formed in Jesus, in his character and his competencies in their lives, the Jesus way, that I did everything in my power. But that's what I'm striving towards. That's what I'm going towards. That's my goal in my life. That's the ambition of my heart. But I want you to think about it for yourself because you have to answer this. Because I think some of us are thinking that this is actually, um, when we talk about war, this is like play war. You know, like my son likes to play around and pretend to fight, you know? Like if you have kids, you know what I'm talking about. And he loves like when I get like upset all of a sudden, like, pretend upset, I'm not really upset. I'll be like, oh, you know, and I do this. I get my, my, uh, my hands on fire and I do a karate chop, you know? And like we were just joking around. It's not really, by the way, I don't, it's not overly hard. And he laughs. <laughs> you know, I think we're doing that with our enemy a little bit too. We're playing with him. I think some of you are playing. It's time to stop playing. It's time to stop pretending. And it's time to start walking in the truth and the reality of what Christ has for you. So again, will you rage war for yourself and others? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love for us. I know as we talk about this, there, this terminology conjures up probably all kinds of different thoughts. But Lord, I pray more than anything, we would hear your heart, your truth, Lord, we want to be a people, as we talk about being a future church, where we waged war with the right enemy, that we came against his accusations with the authority of Scripture, so we are not led astray, we are not duped, we are not just going along with what he wants for us, which is to to bring separation between us and you, and between one another, and between others, Lord. We want to be so attuned to that. So we pray that the authority that's found in your name, Jesus, your scriptures would be ever on our lips, that we would, we would confess, um, not only when we've fallen short, but we confess the truth 
of the scriptures. I pray that we would understand Jesus. You are the great overcomer. And because you are the great overcomer, we can overcome, as we've read, by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of our testimony, and by laying our life down. I pray it may be true of us as a church, but I pray that you would help us to come after you with all that we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.